When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Thea is suspiciously away and not on holiday, so we can only hope it's not for a job interview. But her impeccably northern replacement is here. I think that's me. Hello. Arts editor, former pop star Lucy Dallas. Lucy, favourite pasta dish? Obvious question. I have actually thought about this. Have you? Yeah. Go on. Gnocchi, but roasted. In an oven. I can only say that when Thea's not yeah, here. In an oven. Yeah, I'm w- saying it because she's not here because I'm not sure she'd let me Thea do that. Would Thea spit in your face for a day <laughs> to roast a knocking? No, I don't think so. No. She might applaud my um, going out on a limb. Okay. Marmite pasta? Still can't bear to try it, okay. though you did say it was nice. It was all right. And George, who works with you, loves it. He loves it. Okay, he, well, that's a good sign. All right. Last week, if you remember, I asked you to tweet where you all were when you were listening to this podcast and I said we might read out the most exotic and the most mundane entries. Well, we didn't really get any mundane entries. There's such a cosmopolitan listenership. So here we go. Caroline Morgan listens while driving around Nelson Mandela Bay at the sharp end of Africa. David Dixon's on the upper deck of a double-decker trundling through North Aberdeenshire, the strong cold sun glinting off the North Sea. Poetic. Anthony Nichols sends a picture of his wintry walk to work in Oslo and said this. The voice of Thea, he says, even discussing war has me thinking of cheese. Does Thea make you think of cheese, Lisa? No, Stig, because I know Thea. <laughs> I know Thea and I think of cheese. No, I think of all sorts of lovely things. All right. Stan's walking the dogs in Ibiza. Leon, weight training at the gym. This almost mildly alleviates the boredom. I think that's the that's the most damning with faint praise, that one, isn't it? Scarcely. The praise <laughs> not, is so, not even faint. The praise yeah. is so faint, it's almost, almost not there. A couple more. Ruth's in Wellington, New Zealand, hanging out the washing and listening to the native birds. Lovely. And Mai is having a Sunday morning coffee in Bangkok. So please keep them coming. Where you listen to this podcast, tweet at the TLS and go for either exotic and cosmopolitan or mundane. 
and we'll read out some more next week. This week, wherever you are, we'll be asking Mary Beard whether it's right, helpful and historically accurate to call Donald Trump a fascist. Toby Lishtig, our fiction and politics editor, and there's a happy combination for the age there, is here to talk about the difficulties in writing about Trump more generally. And Julia Bell has written an essay about what it was like to have a terrible, unfair Oxford interview and how it has haunted her since. It's a lovely thing and she will share her thoughts further. It's impossible to escape critical coverage of Donald Trump. His supporters would say it's part of a media and establishment conspiracy to discredit him. His critics would say it's more or less impossible, if you're being rational, to do anything but condemn him. But one term gets bandied around all the time. Fascist. And I got to thinking whether that was being used correctly. Is it a technical term that retains a valuable meaning when it comes to thinking about Trump? Or is it an angry liberal blur to code for someone who's doing things we simply don't agree with? This week in the TLS, we asked some experts to offer their thoughts on the question, including National Treasure and Classics editor Mary Beard. Mary's on the line, and so we'll ask her in a moment. Meanwhile, Toby Lishtig has been looking at different ways in which Trump has been recently treated in books and on film. In Bob Woodward's Fear, for example, Michael Lewis is the fifth risk, and on Michael Moore's documentary Fahrenheit 11.9. Toby's in the studio. Welcome to you, Toby. Hello. And welcome to you, Mary. Hello. Let's do this fascist thing, because it is almost all pervasive, Mary, that you see references to him, and fascism is a phrase that is often very closely follows upon it. Why do you think it happens? Why do you think we reach for the term to describe him, or people reach for the term? I mean, I think it's easy and a bit lazy, really. I think that, and I'm going to include myself in this because I'm sure I've called Trump fascist. Yeah, I I think I probably have as well. So I'm blaming myself as much as anybody else. The problem for me is that most of us who use the term can't really define it. I'm not actually sure the people who called themselves fascists in the mid-20th century could define it. And in that sense, I think it's kind of sloppy and it lets Trump off the hook. You know, I think that I could list, you know, 20 things that I fundamentally appalled me about what Trump's doing and which I think are wrong and need analysis. And I think some of those things get lost under a kind of catch-all slogan, which, you know, Orwell was already telling us was a catch-all slogan in the middle of the 20th century. As you hear, Mary, what's the the classical etymology uh, of it? Where does it go? Because Mussolini used the phrase for the first time, I think, in 1915, but it it relates to to the classics, doesn't it? Well, it relates to the so-called fasces, which were the bundles of rods, sometimes with axes in the middle, that that accompanied Roman magistrates as a mark of their official office holding. Now, I think what's interesting about the ancient origin is that it actually cuts both ways. In one sense, the idea that a magistrate went around with an axe surrounded by a load of rods (laughs) was close to being a threat of the violence which the state could wreak if it chose. So it's a lot more than an iron fist and a velvet glove. But I think the other side of these rods, first of all, was the fact that you didn't put the axe in when you were in the city of Rome. (laughs) So that was a sense of saying, look, at home, we don't use violence. 
and it was as much a guarantee of the legal structures of the state and the protection of the citizen by the legal structures of the state as it was a threat of violence. And as such, it's been used, you can find the Fuskies all over the place in a very positive sense. So the Fuskies decorate part of the House of Representatives in the US Congress. In a sense, there's a kind of it stands for the rule of law and the state doing its proper job. And even Mussolini, he talked about the 20th century as a fascist century, the century of authority, the century of the state. And in many ways, Trump is an example of the cult of the individual, which in, in some ways is set exactly opposite to the, to the power of the state. It's, it's making a thing about being an individual. Yeah. And I think that there are all kinds of things about Trump that don't bear any relationship with any of those other regimes we call fascist. I mean, like, he's not exactly for a huge amount of, whatever the bluster, militaristic imperialism no. in any sense. It's a point made by Eddie Lutvak, actually, in this little seminar we've got. Richard Evans also makes the point that Hitler and Mussolini were minority rulers. Trump's, yeah. he wasn't elected by a popular vote, but he was elected nonetheless by the system denoted in the Constitution. Exactly. And I think that the Hitler and Mussolini had some things in common, but a lot not in common. You know, Nazism wasn't fascism, exactly, in Mussolini's sense of the word. It makes us all feel good, you know, simultaneously good and bad, you know, to shake our heads and say fascism. Right? You know, just like when we were undergraduates and police told us to do things we not to do things we quite wanted to do. A fascist pig, you know. And fine, but just remember, all it is is a slogan. It's unanalyzed. And you know, I, I do feel that every time somebody says, "Oh, Trump is a fascist," now I'd like to be so brave to say, "And now, would you like to define for me what a fascist is?" Toby, do you think it plays into his hands a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, reducing Trump into a one-word soundbite, exactly what Trump does, a one-word soundbite insult, it plays to his level, and he enjoys being insulted by the, the liberal media. I mean, it's, it's kind of grist to his mill, it fans the flames, it's part of the whole shtick. He needs, he needs that kind of opposition, especially that kind of lazy opposition that only trades in soundbites, to fight back in the only way that he knows how to, which is in more insults. I suppose the other danger of it is that then it's, it's just he's like a bogeyman. It's kind of amorphous. You don't have to reason through point by point. This is wrong because X and Y. Don't do this because of X and Y. You just say, ooh, you're a fascist. But the point you make, Mary, and actually it's echoed throughout all the other opinions we, we get here, is that at one level, yeah, and this is the, the classic normalisation of Trump, the fact that we could ask a question about an American president, is he a fascist, and not just get no as a straightforward answer, like what, why are you even asking this question? All of these people, including you, Mary, said, I don't, not entirely sure it's the right term, but here's a lot of ways in which he looks a bit like a fascist. Yeah, that's true. But the question is, where do you go from the label? And it is letting him off the hook. We need careful, cogent, plausible analysis, not just bogeywood. It's just kind of playing to his game. But let's think of the ways in which we might say his behaviour is fascistic in certain respects. You talk about Umberto Eco's essay on earth fascism in the New York Review of Books, Mary, which I think has 14 examples. But there are things that occur to mind. You know, he, he creates an enemy 
in terms of another, he picks a group of people that he's pretty horrible about. He uses the phrase enemies of the people about the press mm-hmm. and the media. He has tries to, to, to fill the judiciary full of his own appointments. He's constitutionally allowed to, perhaps. But do you know what I mean? He's trying to control the rule of law. Of course all those things are true. And of course you can tie all those things up with regimes that have been called fascist or have called themselves. That, but you know, you have to be a bit careful. You know that we don't actually expect a democratic president to fill the Supreme Court with his right-wing enemies, do we? That's true. You know, and that I deplore it, and I deplore the the ideology of some of his appointments. But you know, the idea that he's putting his fellow travellers into the Supreme Court that does not make him a fascist. And actually, so much of what what we term fascist is is about what he says as much as what he does. And I think there's a big focus on what he says. Tim Snyder comes up with quite a a neat phrase, which is couch fascism. He sits and tweets these terrible fascistic-sounding things from his sofa, which is not to say that he hasn't done some terrible things, but it takes away the focus from what he's doing on the policy side, which actually, to me, is far more terrifying than some of the things that he tweets at three in the morning. I don't know if you remember this, Mary. We had a piece by Andrew Sullivan a few weeks ago. And the danger of couch fascism is... Andrew Sullivan, who's a Republican conservative figure, he said it's plausible in his mind that Donald Trump loses the next election by a small amount and refuses to accept the verdict and effectively then energises a group of people to rise up and well, say... when words spill into deeds. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. do you buy that at all? Because, you know, you are very familiar with demagogues, Mary, yeah, throughout no, your sure, period. Sure. Is there a risk no, that the words could have d- meaning? D- demagogues, let's remember, are people who appeal to the people using arguments we don't like. Again, yes. you know, demagogue <laughs> is a bit the same as fascist. I can see that remote possibility, of course, you know, and that could be true at any time or any place. I, I can equally see, and this is, you know, likewise in the realm of fantasy, that one morning Trump will get up and say, you know, blimey, I don't like this anymore. He's no fun. You know, I'm resigning. And then we get Pence. Oh, help. (laughs) His kind of, I'm going to use the word juvenile, his kind of, you know, his juvenile engagement and, you know, I think irresponsible engagement with politics, I think is, is entirely consistent with him one day thinking, stuff this for a game of soldiers. You know, it's no fun. I can't get my way. Say we got Pence. Would the phrase fascistic be used towards him? Maybe it would, because it's just simply become a, a way in which liberal people criticise conservative people. I think there's a, there is a, a sense in which it is partly, and I think, you know, this is, you know, we should be a bit careful about ourselves. It's the appearance of Trump that helps us say that. You know, you look at him in the rallies, you look at the the hair, you look at the apparently kind of glaring eyes, and you think he looks like a dictator to me. Now, that isn't where we should be. Funny enough, Caroline Moorhead makes exactly that point. If you Google Trump and Mussolini, she says, you find portraits of an undeniable, indeed shocking similarity. The same thin, tightly clamped lips, the sneering expressions, the jutting chins, the hooded eyes. But she makes the point that you can't obviously rely on that. Having said again all that, though, we are talking about rallies and he says he's a nationalist. He uses the phrase America first. You know, the caravan, migrant caravan that he talks about, he didn't mention preceding the election he didn't mention it after the election he was picking on a group of people in order to whip up a frenzy in support these are not not troubling things no the fact that that i'm wanting to try to avoid the 
the adjective. The F word. Is the F word. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nor can I want to let Trump off the hook yeah, or think yeah. that he's remotely nice. I think that, that it's those slogans which tend to let him off the hook. I think that he is an irresponsible, lying, deeply distrustworthy, and you know, I can't think of enough adjectives, politician who is going to have serious, you know, whose policies in, for example, the Supreme Court will have serious implications for the United States of America for decades. So I think all this is worrying, but let's fight him on the right territory, not on whether he's a fascist or not. Also, one of the traits of fascism is enforcing rule with violence and one of the other contributors mentions that he doesn't do very much he doesn't do much incitement but then again things like charlottesville he whipped that up and then when he saw that there was a bit of a backlash he kind of disowned it but not really not really he then went back on himself again and yeah, then and, exactly. and was actually very so cross he, that he was persuaded to yeah. climb, climb down i think that the attitude towards that is pretty crucial because if you start enforcing things or if you start inciting violence of those kinds of groups let's say white supremacist groups yeah. people like the kkk who you can much more clearly say things like fascist yeah, about yeah, the, then but, that that becomes but, a different ball game but that doesn't seem to be happening and right I, I mean, I think that's true, but I think we have to remember that, you know, there are very, very nasty and disturbing tactics being used. Very, very. But they are not nasty and disturbing tactics that have been kind of the unique brand of fascism. You know, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I think that we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook of doing some hard argument rather than abuse him. It's very, you know, I have fun abusing Trump. <laughs> well, where does it get us? We'll, 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 we'll come to that later on, Mary. Is, is the better argument that he's not authoritarian in the way that Lucy's talking about? He's just more irresponsible. He's heedless of consequence. So he would say something on Twitter that might whip up a frenzy. He's not then enforcing that, but he just doesn't really care if it creates yeah, But he, he knows what he's doing. I mean, he, he, he monitors tweets for how many likes he gets. He's very aware of what gets responses. And he's very, you know, he, he likes statistics and he likes getting as many likes and retweets as possible. So mm. he knows what he's doing. But yeah, I think, he's, I think he just doesn't care about the consequence. I think it's probably quite, you have to be quite rigorous to be a proper fascist, actually. Ideology. I'm not kidding. Yeah, you've, yeah. Got to have, you've got to have an ideology that you understand <laughs> and you stick to. And you've got to be, and I'm sorry to use this word, efficient. And none of that is true. I really dislike comparing Trump to Roman emperors, as I've said before. But there is a kind of sense that I want to talk about him, not as Roman historians want to talk about Nero. I'm not saying he is like Nero, but I'm saying our our anxieties are the same. That you have got a smart late adolescent on the throne. And there's a vanity, there's a shrewdness, there's an ability to to charm, because I'm sure there is, to some, well, we know there is, it's not our version of charm, but there's an ability to persuade. And you think, the problem is, what has happened to the American presidency that this guy plausibly fits the bill? Yeah. That's what they said about, you know, what has happened to the Roman Empire that someone like Nero could be on this road. And so we have to look at that. And that's where we have to examine ourselves as much as him. Mary, I'm glad you did manage to uh, compare him to a Roman emperor, while, even while saying you weren't going to. That's, uh, that sounds hugely accurate to me. Mary Beard, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Here's another point, Toby Ishtig, who's written about critics of Donald Trump. It's pretty hard to publicly criticise the real fascists of Hitler and Mussolini. 
Yeah, you'd get into quite a lot of trouble mm. and um, end up dead. And in fact, that's not true of Trump. Not only does Trump like it, the critics like it as well. Ba- like Trump it. bashing. Do you think, here's a question, that Trump bashing has become too intoxicating a thing for American media, for American commentators? It's just too, it's too fun. In a word, yes. And I think, um, I think it's problematic. And I don't massively see a way out of it because it, it gets eyes on screens. It sells papers. It sells advertising space on news channels. The famous thing last week was Bob Acosta stands up, has a row with the president. Yep. The president accuses him of assaulting a uh, uh, an intern who's trying to take the microphone off him and bans him. And it's terrible, and, and this is where fascistic terms get banded about, like he's controlling the press. But CNN also absolutely loved it. Completely. They should, they should have uh, sanctimonious because journalists are so used to getting criticism for the bad stuff they've done when they've not done bad stuff. Yeah. They love it. And don't there they? was there was a small movement on Twitter again saying, "Do you know what? We should stop engaging with Trump. We should all of us should stop turning up to press conferences. Not allow." You can't uh, do that. And, and of course, you, you can try, but it's not going to work because, you know, all your competitors are going to you know start sending journalists anyway because people want to engage with this and they like the whole circus to a certain extent, even if they hate it. You know, it's the, it's the classic Twitter thing where things get boiled down to emotion and to rage. But it's not even Twitter. It's, it's, network, not even Twitter. It's, it's network television. No, but absolutely. But, it's, but, it, but it's also feeds into Twitter and is fed by Twitter. It's all part of the same system. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Got, the Trump bump, it's called. He's been very, very good for EG newspaper sales. It's an extraordinary thing to think. I hadn't really thought about that, but... Yeah, in in a way, all the media are rubbing their hands, absolutely deploring him and rubbing their hands with glee because the numbers are so good. And interestingly, there's an argument, oh, he uses Twitter, and everyone says he uses Twitter to talk to his base. But actually, most of his base aren't on Twitter. A lot of his base get it refracted off Twitter. So he says something, and people report it. People report the blurts. He said at the minute while we were recording this, he's gone to France for the armistice and didn't go to the to the ceremony because it, it was raining. raining. And that's finally sunk into him how awful that looks because he's now blathering along on Twitter about the real reason he didn't do it and blaming the Secret Service and blaming everyone. And of course... I only know that because I've read that reported. Actually, I've not read his Twitter feed. And that's what he's managed to do, hasn't it? He's found a way of sparking the coverage, even uh, if it's against him. Absolutely, even if it's against him. And, and the, one, of the problem, one of the many problems with that is that it, it allows us to, to focus on his everyday outbursts, his crazy-sounding one-line tweets or whatever, and it takes us away from policy. And it means that we, mm. we're not spending enough time engaging with and thinking about actually what is happening. Bob Woodward, arguably the most famous living journalist... Possibly in possibly, America, possibly yes, in the world. Watergate guy has written a book called Fear, sold a million copies. Yeah, there you go. Trump's good for book sales as well. Yeah, mm. Trump's good. Yeah, we'll get to Michael Wolff as the other one, but there's a couple you, you've, you've reviewed actually. How does he handle it? Is it is he it... handles it in classic Woodward style? He talks to a hell of a lot of people in the Trump court, and he constructs sort of a portrait. In this case, a sort of we often use the word Shakespearean when, when we talk about the Trump court, but a Shakespearean portrait of how it all operates. It's quite driven by personality. Again, he doesn't engage with policy that much. I don't think that's... Well, it's a problem, but it's not what Woodward's setting out to do. Woodward's doing what he does, which is which is kind of talk about people and talk about the arguments. That's and easy, the, but that's easy, isn't it? It is quite easy. What, if, you, the if you've useful, got the contact. The useful thing... He's, he's got the you know, fantastic contact. The useful thing he's done is just dredge up lots of evidence that will be very useful for historians, who said what to whom. He's not very critical. He's never very critical in his books. He tends to just sort of present the evidence. I think he's slightly too reliant on sources. In, in this case, a couple of sources are clearly central to the whole thing. One's Gary Cohn, who's um, the former economic advisor of Trump and the architect of the enormous tax reforms. And the other one is um, Trump's former legal counsel, John M. Dowd. 
and actually it gets he gets a little bit too involved in everything Dowd says. Obviously, Dowd was defending him in the ongoing Miller investigation. In the end, he resigned because he felt that Trump's desire to testify was going to be not in Trump's interest. But he's given a bit too much voice in this book, in my opinion. It's a very useful book. It does feed the beast. It fans the flames of the whole thing. It, 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 it's, it's more gossip. And David Shields, <laughs> uh, nobody hates Trump more than Trump. Well, that occurred to me, that feeds the beast, doesn't it? It does feed the beast. I mean, Trump, uh, Shields is not a political commentator. He's a, he's, he's a, he's a literary critic. He, he oh, has, is he? Yeah, he's, he's mainly a literary critic. Is he, he the guy who did the manifesto? The, yeah, the reality, reality hunger, yeah. yeah. And so he's very, he's very interested in, in sort of how we present ourselves in the modern world. He, he sort of, he, he had this turn against the novel and he's very into kind of uh, autofiction. And obviously Trump is quite... Oh. A, <laughs> this is like the sticks groaning. Subject. Do we like, like autofiction? Yeah. I'm a bit... Cr- yeah. I've, I've been cross with autofiction for a while. I mean, I mean, that's a different clear, subject. Is a thinly disguised memoir. Yeah, it's basically memoir. It's basically, it's basically memoir yeah, written as fiction. but you call it fiction. making it up, so yeah. you don't you have to take responsibility. Step there's, forward, Carl Ulrich Knauskow. Good autofiction and bad autofiction. Tony loves Knauskow. You've got Ferrante, which is sort of autofiction style, except it's much more made up. Anyway, let's not get too derailed by that. But what Shields is doing, I mean, he... He basically takes uh, an, a whole load of quotes and I don't know off the off the wall and off, off the off the back of a fag packet or whatever a comments about Trump and kind of puts them into this postmodern word salad in a Trumpian style. He, he's doing it slightly ironically. It's fun. You do get some interesting insights into him. You know, he compares at one point. I didn't put in the piece, but he compares Trump to the Sex Pistols. Um, you know. The idea oh, being just kind of annoying for the sake of being annoying. Yeah, and also kind of suppo- supposedly yeah. tearing up the system, but actually entirely manufactured. And I thought that was and doing rather well. And doing rather well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is Donald Trump going to be advertising? I can't believe it's not butter in twenty years' <laughs> exactly. time. And that's that's kind of fun. And then he sort of he takes various <laughs> comments, appalling comments that Trump said over the years that either sound racist or actually weirdly where he's come out with things that don't sound at all racist and said, "Is he a fake racist? Does he not even believe that he, the, the racist well, things well, he said? And is that more of a problem?" And you know, he sort of well, poses that was kind of Lucy's point. He doesn't have the eye. He doesn't. He's not ideological yeah, in, any, in any way. Exactly. I don't. I mean, I don't think. Yes, I don't. I think he's probably got some fairly unpleasant views. But you, I reckon you could probably argue him out of them pretty quickly. Well, he's, uh, he's been a Democrat absolutely. for a story. Yeah, yeah. yeah Given loads of money, money to the Democrats. Hillary's, so, Hillary's best mate for yeah. ages. So Shields' book is, is kind of fun. Brett Easton loves it. There's a great endorsement, which is unsurprising. You know, it's it's that it's that kind of thing. It's fun. It's 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 postmodern. Postmodern. It's, it's gonna to it's gonna make you think. It's, it's not going to teach you a great deal. You didn't already know about Trump. You'll you'll have a few sound bites out of it. Which Speaking is of which. Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Well, I said salad, didn't I? You Word said salad. salad. That's the, that's, these are our salad days, aren't they? Yes. It's, 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 he, he does this thing at the beginning of the film. So this is his new film, Fahrenheit 11 yeah, so, 9. So Michael Moore famously, he, he, did he invent that kind of a populist documentary yeah, man with a so camera? Yeah, st- he starts with Roger and me in the late 80s where he, he tracks the um, General Motors guy who's sacked loads of workers and he, he sort of doorsteps him and he, he, it becomes a kind of very first-person driven narrative. Um, a sort of a kind of polemic, but a kind of fun polemic. And yeah, he basically he he pioneered that sort of documentary. And he did the nine eleven one, and he did the Fahrenheit nine nine eleven one. And this is eleven nine because that was the day that Trump was actually was elected. Um, so it's a, it's a play on that, and it's basically Michael Moore is much better when he is on a small scale. So he's very good in Roger and Me. He's talking about a very specific thing to do with workers being laid off, and you know the ramifications of that and the culture in which that happened. You know his health. Care one sicko is pretty good. The bone of Columbine, that's probably the famous one that's about gun control. This is sort of everything. I mean, Fahrenheit 9 11 was also sort of everything, everything that was wrong with the, with the Bush administration. This is everything that's wrong with America that allowed us to 
elect Trump and everything that's wrong with Trump. And it's just, it's all over the place. It's a mess. It's mm-hmm. a complete mess. And there's, a, there's this bit at the beginning where you've got a Trump speech, which we, which uh, Moore actually cuts up further. So that sounds even more crazy into this kind of series of sound bites. But if you actually try, and I tried this, I, I watched the documentary and I wrote down the sort of narrative and you try and follow the narrative in it. And it's just, it's mostly anger. And some of it's very good. You know, he talks a lot about this massive scandal in Flint, Michigan, which happens to be where Michael Moore's from. If you're going to have a scandal, don't do it in Flint, Michigan, because <laughs> yeah. Michael Moore will make a documentary about yeah. it. And it's about the contamination of the water there and, and, yeah. the, and the terrible reasons behind it. And that bit's all very moving. And you think, well, that's terrible that happened. And he, he makes a nice sort of 15-minute sort of mini-documentary out of it. But you come out of it thinking, that doesn't actually have that much to do with Trump. And then actually in that section, Trump comes to Flint, Michigan, and sort of says, hey, I'm, I'm here for you guys. And you, you're sort of not quite sure where that's placed in the documentary. The only interesting thing about it to me was this, is this point he makes about how America is a leftist country and how... The majority is actually not pro-gun control, and the majority is not. I can't. I couldn't get my head round. So it is pro-gun control. The majority piece. is pro-gun control. Sorry, it's, it's, it's pro-gun control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so how has none of this been allowed to get anywhere near the electoral rule-making body? What do you mean the rulemaking? Well, because well, the, the, the people who are, if, if that great percentage of people are pro-gun control, why hasn't there been any? Well, I suppose in different states there are different laws, aren't there? And, and, you and, know, a lot, and they talk and, about and the it, gun lobby. And, and exactly, and, and there's a very powerful but gun lobby. But is it that thing where people say, oh, yes, I am, but in fact they vote for the guy who isn't? Is well, it, they might vote for him for different reasons as well. But even leaving aside gun control, yeah, how leftist is America? I mean, it's not enormously leftist, but he makes the point that, you know, in terms of the popular vote, which is important, yeah, the, yeah. The, the Republicans have won it only once in the last, is it three decades? I think it's three decades. So that's about administrative areas. Yeah, so it's about gerrymandering. It's about Waiting of the vote and exactly, things like Exactly, it's, it's about, you know, electoral laws that go back to the Civil War and the post-Civil War settlement, these things that are very outdated. Pe- so, people in power in states can actually control who's registered to vote and things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, the amount of African Americans and that, that aren't, you know, eligible to vote, for example, it's something, something extraordinary. It's something like the late teens, and that's because there's a high proportion of African Americans who have been felons, and if you're a former felon in most states, you're not allowed to vote. You are now mm. in Florida, which is a big thing. Let's talk before, because we've got to keep going uh, on this. Michael Lewis, who is arguably one of the great observers of systems absolutely in the modern world. Absolutely. And he so did Blindside, he did... He's, um, done, he's done banking. Yeah. I love Michael Lewis. I love the way he writes. It's yeah. very. He did Moneyball. For he baseball. did Moneyball, which is, which is brilliant. And this is infrastructure. This yeah. is this is Michael Lewis on the civil service and the sort of the, the mechanisms of government. And it's very very good because, unlike these other books and unlike all the other stuff we've been talking about, it looks at at not just policy but the way in which policy affects things on the ground. So he goes, in a way, it's an extended essay. I mean, it's it's, it's sold as a book, but it's a it's it's a long essay. And he he goes and talks to this guy who's a risk analyst, and he used to be at the Environmental Protection Agency, and he asks him what the main risks that he sees are facing the US today. And there's North Korea, and there's Iran, and and but the main well, well sorry, the fifth risk, and that's what gives the, the name to the book, is a kind of unknown known. It's it's something that could happen to knock off the power grid or, or things that we haven't thought about, that, but that a well-functioning civil service and you know various systems are in place to kind of deal with. And the contempt, I mean, this is where Trump is a bit ideological and his administration certainly is. The contempt for government mm. yeah. is beginning to unravel those systems. And it's not something you see immediately. You know, if, if you've got a body within a body within a body that's responsible for a toxic cleanup of a, a former nuclear power station that's something that takes years and you don't see the effects of it in day-to-day life but you do if it goes wrong yeah. yeah and when you start unraveling the state 
that's when these sorts of things go wrong. And he doesn't... Imp- so so the, the knock against Trump is he had no concept of the complexity of government. Absolutely none at all. No, he, there, there's, there's a great quote from Steve Bannon, of all people, which said that Trump simply doesn't believe that permanent institutions have much power. He just doesn't believe in the power of them. He doesn't think it exists. And then he's quite surprised when he finds out that they've got lots of money and they've got lots of power. How does he think the streets get swept? I, perhaps perhaps he just didn't it. bloody think about it. I mean, you, but, you've got to wonder. So the, the failure on, on that level is that he simply... is not that he's appointed his cronies, not, although he sometimes has... there is a bit, of that. Just, there is a bit yeah, of that. But he just hasn't appointed anyone. Yeah, in certain, so in certain cases. Lots of there's posts, this, so so the Michael Lewis book starts with this whole thing about, you know, you have, when you're in the States, because of the way the civil service works there, you need a transition team. You mm, don't yeah, already yeah. have a permanent... You, know, you, you see, it happens on the West Wing. You have to yeah, have a transition exactly. team. You have to, uh, they didn't have a transition team. All they had was Chris Christie and, like, 12 of his mates like wandering around saying, Trump, we need a transition team. And Trump actually said, don't jinx me. I don't want a transition but, team. But there isn't a transition team in Britain because no, the we civil don't, service because, is apolitical and it's completely apolitical, removed. Exactly. And so, you know, the head of the Home Office remains, the head, you know, within the civil service yeah. remains the director of the Home Office or whatever. But you don't have that in the States. And so the day after Trump wins, all these different departments, I mean, Lewis tells the story very well, are literally sitting there waiting for a phone call from the person who's due to head up the Environment Agency or whatever. Mm. The phone never rings, and it doesn't the next day. And they prepare all these detailed documents to hand over to the transition team. And maybe a month later, someone wanders in who has no idea about anything. And it's a, I think it is a mixture of genuine ideology. These guys want the state dismantled, mm. and also total carelessness and unpreparedness. Is it a bit like? Is it a bit as though the prime minister didn't just didn't appoint ministers yeah. for the head of state, so Defra wouldn't have anyone to well, think actually, about if you it? Look at, if you look at pu- pu- uh, there's, there's ambassadorial appointments yes, exactly. in, in Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, because they appoint all the ambassadors each time as well. It's not like you have mm, a permanent, yes, you right, know. Yeah, yeah. And there's many of them so they have, just haven't done it. Just haven't done it. Yeah, yeah. And, in, you know, in th- countries that you'd want them in. And, you know, these things do carry on running because the deputies step up, I guess, and there are other people there. But, I mean, it, it exposes you. And, again, this is not something that happens immediately. But if perhaps... Perhaps in two years' time, Trump will be with us, and perhaps he won't. If there's an eight-year administration or a twelve or sixteen with Ivanka, that's that's when mm. time is going to tell so what what happens. It seems to me that one of the great charges against Trump, which is always there, but as Mary was saying, you don't get round to because you're too busy shouting about his tweets exactly. or his fascism, exactly. his competence, exactly. Yeah, and this yeah. is why the that's Michael Lewis book. <laughs> this yeah. is why the Lewis book is very, very good, and I would advise everyone to read it because it, it looks at the incompetence, but not just from a kind of like, ha ha, isn't that awful? Yeah. Let's let's all get angry, but actually, what it means. It's not. We disagree profoundly with what he's doing. It's that he's not doing anything, yeah. and by not doing anything, mm-hmm. it will decompose and unravel, and then be not fit for purpose. Yeah, and then there's something really terrible. And then if might you happen. get bird flu or a fire exactly. or or a nuclear station having a all problem. Right. What? No, I'm just saying. No, 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 no. It is exactly. No, it, it is exactly that. It is exactly bird flu. Well, thank example. you, harbingers of doom. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, this is a piece on Trump. We weren't going to be. It's going to be cheery. No. Yeah. Toby Lishtig, thank you very much indeed. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week, the writer and lecturer Julia Bell relives her entrance interview for Oxford University for the TLS in a candid, thought-provoking essay. She learns a lot from it, but not necessarily what she wanted to learn. Julia, many thanks for coming in and talking to us and for this vivid evocation of that time. I don't think I should tell any more of it because it's your story, so could you set the scene for us about where you came from physically and figuratively, as it were, and and what you found um, at your Oxford interview, please. Thanks. Yeah, well, I was interviewed for a place at Jesus College in 1988, going into 1989. I'd come from a very small local comprehensive in Wales, which had a catchment area of 30 miles, and no-one from my school had ever applied to Oxford, never mind got in before. And I sat the entrance paper in good faith, and then... I got to Oxford, I got to the interview, and we had to stay overnight in the college. And I was completely and utterly socially out of my depth. So this I mean, is even before the interview? even before the interview. So we're talking girls from Beedales and Rodine who were wearing clothes from shops that I'd never seen or never shopped in. I had an outfit from Dorothy Perkins that my mum had picked out in Carmarthen. I mean, you know, I was naive. I, I, I absolutely acknowledge that. But, but I don't see that that should be any kind of barrier to my... Education, but that itself, I presume, if it had just been that a culture shock, moving to that wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't necessarily complain about that for Oxford's point of view. Not that's at kind all. Of, that's no. kind of that's a, there's a social argument to be made about that. But if that's all it was, that wouldn't be that. Wouldn't well, they were be... English. They were very English students, and I'd been brought up in Wales. Uh, and there's I, a difference. Is there a distinction there? I think so. I think mm. the Welsh education system really does have a sense that education has a social good. And to become a teacher in Wales, to become a teacher or a doctor or yeah. a lawyer or somebody that provides a good service in that kind of those middle class areas in Wales is considered to be you're a good member of, of society if you've have achieved that. And I felt very out of place. I think there's a story that I tell in this about a guy who, well, a boy who I would say resembles in my mind somebody like Boris, who had very hunched shoulders, he had very fluffy hair. He went bright red when he spoke to me and he asked to borrow my phone card, which were those old green phone cards, you remember, yeah. which I'd been given by my parents so I could phone home in an emergency. So I thought, well, borrow means lend and give me back. So I gave it to him. And then I went into this interview, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a minute, and I didn't see him. I didn't see him again sort of for the rest of the day. And then I think I bumped into him as I was going and I said, oh, have you got my phone card? And he sort of fumbles around in his pockets and gives me this really crumpled phone card and he'd used all the credit and he was bright red in the face and I don't know you know that he couldn't speak to women I don't know whether he'd just been to an all-boys school and he wasn't familiar with it or whether he just didn't have absolutely no social graces whatsoever 
Um, and was entitled. I mean, this yeah, is, I mean, he felt like he was entitled. This is the whole. This whole thing is about entitlement to a certain I thought, extent. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting though that because you said that even those who who knew the rules. At one point, you say you, in the whole process, you can say, I, "I can sense there are rules here, but I don't know what they are." Mm. Whereas the guy who borrowed your phone card probably did know the rules in the sense that you know you got the impression that he was a kind of public schoolboy, but he wasn't comfortable either. Well, I think <laughs> for a different set of yes. reasons. I'm not saying it's the same. I'm not saying it's an equivalent situation. No. But that nobody, or, or the, there is a, a lot of people not feeling comfortable in that environment. But but you you were at a, at a different. Um... I just think he was incredibly posh. I just remember the way that he spoke it was like something out of a out of you know old times film. I mean, it was so it, it was so alien to me because I'd gone to this kind of mm. very broad, comprehensive where mm. we had you know home economics, woodwork, metalwork, art, pottery. We had a swimming pool. Everybody was educated together. It didn't matter what your ability was. You were we were all in the classes together and we worked together for the school there was a genuine sense of, of it being a community rather than a sort of race or a, a kind of darwinistic sense that we were all competing against each other for for something so you then yeah. come to oxford where you are competing in darwinian fashion against <laughs> yeah. other people to get in because that's the nature of admissions so explain what happens because this to me is a bit where where there seems to be systemic prejudice well, I think so, and I've been very reluctant to share this story. I mean, I'm I'm getting on a bit now, and it's been a while since this happened, and I've always carried this experience as a mark of shame, that it meant that I wasn't smart enough to sort of run with the clever people and that I must therefore sort of take my chances. And in, in a funny kind of way, I, I, I'm very grateful for that experience because I think that it really has motivated a lot of my work since and it has been at the heart of my teaching practice and also my writing practice so in a way I'm grateful for it but the experience itself was pretty horrific uh, I got into the room I was on a chair higher than everybody else in the room there was someone on a chaise long looking incredibly bored looking out the window a woman there was someone behind me and then there was a guy sort of firing questions at me and I went completely blank having written this paper on Keats which I can I can still remember I can remember writing it in the school library invigilated by the lovely RS teacher etc cetera, etc cetera. and I hadn't been prepared for the interview at all because I don't think we understood at that point as a school what, yeah. what was expected and the following year the geography teacher's son got in because everybody knew what to expect I'd sort of gone back with all of this knowledge that they could then apply so no one introduced themselves so you walk in you're a, you're a young girl and you're a young woman from I'm 17 you're 17 years mm. old yeah. and you walk in three people three adults in the room yeah no one introduces themselves. And didn't you say, sorry to interrupt, but also you knocked and nobody said come in? Yes, no one said come in initially. So after a while and then you I was just to... like, well, what do I do? Is yeah. that, am I supposed to come in or not? I felt like I was being tricked and then laughed at. And then. And were you in retrospect, or do you think that's just how it felt? I think that that is exactly what this scenario is meant to do to the people who apply, is that it is a sort of trial by nerve. It's a trial by can you sustain this level? Of, and, and the whole time, I just remember in the interview, the whole time thinking, why is the room laid out like this? Mm. You know, I was expecting people yeah. to be sat behind a desk. Yeah. I was expecting one person, not three. I was not expecting somebody to be sitting behind me. I mean, I was totally... I can't get over the behind you. Well, that was the thing that freaked me out the most, is that I couldn't actually see the face of the person that was asking me questions. And I thought, well, am I supposed to turn around? Which would have been awkward, because I was... On it. I just remember it being... And I also felt like Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Mm. I was the, uh, suddenly too big. I'd drank in the drinks that made me fit the room in a really ridiculously enormous kind of way. You describe being frozen yes. and having that 
kind of reaction and not being able to think about what you were very knowledgeable about and yes. very passionate about. And, and it's not that you you had worked any of this up in order to get in. You were really interested in Keats and the poetry. Yes. And you, were, you really you wanted to talk about it and you wanted to learn about it. Yeah. The, the thing that you were saying about being frozen and that, that reaction, which is like a kind of... And um, I think we have these responses in, in the vagus nerve. It's been proved that it's connected to the way in which the body responds to sort of things that they con- we consider to be danger. And I think that the programming for all of us for what we might consider to be dangerous is different. So in my case, mm-hmm. I think I have a very specific freeze response, which is, you know, the bear's coming at me. Am I going to run away? Am I going to fight it? Am I going to freeze? Yeah. Obviously, yeah. my body thinks that freezing and becoming invisible is the best option in that in that situation. And I think that I went into that moment completely. I mean, it's happened to me at other points in my life when I've been nervous and I've had to really work against I've had to work on myself physiologically in order mm. to, to help me overcome those nerves. I, it doesn't, I don't suffer from it so much now. But I think that it cemented something in me at that point, that sense of complete and utter abject embarrassment that I wasn't able to remember the things that I knew that I knew. And did you think they were try- effectively <coughs> they were trying to embarrass you, they were trying to discomfort you, and they yes. didn't care that you weren't operating on a level playing field? Yes. Because even if they did the same thing to everyone, some people would have come from an environment where they've done five mock interviews, they've got a certain amount of cultural confidence because of the culture they've brought up in, and so it's not a level playing field in that sense, but they were trying to they were, they were trying to make it hard for you. Yes, I think that's true, and I think that you cannot look at the entrance of Oxford now and think that it still in any way means, shape or form, a level playing field. And also what motivated me to write this was sort of analytically looking at those who did get in around that time. I mean, Boris and, and Cameron and Osborne are a generation older than me, but they're all from the same Oxford club and they're all in power. I think that that conveyor belt from from school to Oxbridge to, to Westminster is the thing that's completely destroying this country at it'll the be, moment. It'll be interesting to see when this comes out and people comment on it, but even talking to people in the paper, Lucy, it felt that the thing you were saying, people weren't surprised. Not surprised. And as I say, a, a few of us have had direct experiences that were fairly similar. Whether, you, you people, you whether people got in or didn't get in. You weren't actually. surprised. No, not surprised at all. And I had a pretty similar experience. Actually. Right. I think it's very brave of you to write about <laughs> Well, I think it. this is the other thing, is that, is that because of the humiliation of it, I kept my mouth shut about it. And now seems mm. the time to have this conversation because I think the thing that that, that really concerns me is that it feels like the government is incredibly out of touch with the rest of the country, and why? And you have to look at who educated them. Who educated these people to think that we still live in a world where the map is pink, where there is an empire still to be... But even if you go one step back from that and not think about these people taking over the country, you're still left in the situation. Do we believe that if you're a clever kid from the provinces somewhere, you know, Carmarthen or... Or, or Scotland, Scotland, or, Newcastle, yeah. or, yeah. or yeah. anywhere. And that's not London, that's yeah. not the South East. That's not the South East. Do we feel that the playing field has been levelled at all? Do you reckon this type of experience still goes on? I'm not saying 
specifically at Jesus College now, who knows? But do you think it's still geared against people? Well, we have to look at the statistics and they don't look very good. I no. mean, how many? you've got more opportunity to get into Oxford if you come from Westminster than if you're a black person. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's pretty horrific. And I think Oxford often answers these questions by saying, oh, well, it's not our fault, we just work with the students who've been sent to us by the secondary yeah. schools. But we've got an enormous problem in secondary schools at the moment. The academies don't work. We've got a really sort of beleaguered kind of state school system and then we have you know if you've got the money you can buy basically you can buy your child a place in a in oxford are things changing a bit though because it, it, do you think they are do you think i think they, if they're going to change they need to have anonymous entrance well, exam. explain that because that seems to me an interesting well they point. do this in iran and iran has got an incredibly good public school system and their best universities everybody applies they sit in entry everybody sits in entrance paper never mind the a levels and they do it anonymously so daddy can't phone up the college and say please can you give my son a place or of course you'll go in there because i've donated a million quid to the renovation yeah. of the west wing or whatever it is that it's actually done on merit that they sit the exam because they're clever enough to get in and it's not about you know hazing out children from working class or northern backgrounds or whatever but also in terms of your point of your experience you say that for the exam you did get in on the exam yeah they said in the in, in the rejection letter that my exam was good enough but my performance at interview was so bad they weren't going to offer me which would seem to indicate that that's well but they, i was felt like i was of course, I wasn't no, of course, you interview. felt like, no, yeah. exactly, no, of course. But what I'm saying is that if we're saying that the interview is, it's not a level playing field, put it that way. But actually, no, because no. if they had done it by exam... Yeah, I, might, I would have got in. If I hadn't have gone for interview, I think I probably would have got in. But there's lots of you know, arguments that exams aren't always necessarily level playing But it should be anonymous. I think yeah. that the fact that the fact that we can know that Lord so-and-so's son has applied or there's so-and-so's family has applied... Or... There's a system, isn't there, that, that kind of moves you down a certain track the anonymous thing is really interesting because i know that happened in orchestras and this was about gender balance yeah. um they started there was a kind of perceived problem it was a very real problem that i think women just weren't getting hired so they started doing auditions for orchestras behind a screen guess what happened yeah <laughs> you'll never work, guess yeah. yes of course it did it ended up about and 50, just being 50. more transparent you could make an argument i suppose that one of the purposes of interview is to is to gain some sort of sense if you did an interview fairly and you're looking for potential rather than polish you could do a system fairly well, because an interview really should be about potential exactly. do you have do you have something in you yeah. that shows you that you're keen and excited and and would fit would fit in with an institution that values those things that shouldn't be impossible Well, I either. felt like I was so socially sort of out of my depth that everything yeah. seemed to be completely out of my depth. And I'm, I'm an educationalist. I teach. I run on a course up at Birkbeck. I interview people all the time. And what I'm looking for in the interview is exactly that. It's potential. It's whether or not I can teach that person. Yeah. Have they got something mm. to say for themselves? Do they look like they could tolerate sort of a bit of criticism? Can they but can they make allowances the... for people? Because if someone came... Imagine you were doing that and someone came in and they froze... It's and, happened. And would you now be more simple and think, well, maybe they can't take criticism. Maybe they can't take the pressure because they're failing at this bit and that means they wouldn't be any good to me to teach. No, I'm more likely to offer them a place because I feel sorry <laughs> for them. I mean, there's some people that just genuinely do in those situations. They go bright red, they're very embarrassed, yeah. they sort of stutter a bit and then you give them a place and they go, oh, thank you so much. I felt like I really messed that up. But I'm like, yeah, but your writing's really good. Your personal statement was You've got really to be coherent. looking in good faith, haven't you? Yeah, and you're looking at the whole spread. You're looking at the work, the personal statement, the interview. It's not just based on one element. Everything. So maybe it isn't just together. anonymous exams. You could have an anonymous exam score and an interview that was 
more audited because I, I don't know whether it because you always hear horror stories from Oxbridge yeah. interviews of three people like you say or a crazy question or a chair with I don't even know how true these are you know sort of a chair with one leg that falls over and and the justification given is usually it's to sort of challenge the uh, the idea given that it's to challenge on an intellectual level but I think what you're saying about the biopower and about Foucault is, is really interesting because that's not on an intellectual level if you're going to think quickly and interestingly you have to feel physically exactly. secure. Exactly. And I don't think... And, and my, my question is that when you start to look at it on that level, you start to ask really interesting questions about what they're actually looking for in terms of the personality of the person in the interview room. That feels a very valid point and to I, make. And I worry about that. Because they know, don't they? Because I remember... I did get into Cambridge, but I was terrified before I went of it being this place that was, it would, you know, crenellated walls and Hogwartsian, as it mm. now seems. And they know that. Because they love it. If you work in Oxbridge, you love that bit. You love the tradition. You love stomping around the place in the gown. That's one of the reasons you, I presume that you're you're there. The fact they don't take allowance or didn't for you make allowances for that. They know how imposing this is. If you're staying away from home, possibly for the first time ever, in what looks like a castle, and getting up the next morning and going into room and knowing they must, they I must know. know. They I must know. know. No, but I think that that's where you're in a way. Sorry, but I, I think that's where the mistake is. I mean, I think that we 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 look at the current government and go, well, they must know how much people are suffering at the moment. They must understand how difficult it is for people yeah. Yeah, who are poor. And I am sorry, but I don't think they do. I, I don't, really don't think they I do. I quite agree. I remember. And I'm, I hope I haven't said this before because I do say this quite often. There's an interview with George Osborne one time, and he was trying to protest that he had uh, quite a normal schooling because <laughs> he said there were all sorts of people at my school. I think he said lawyers, doctors, and bankers. Yeah, <laughs> and it really, but uh, but, but it was really. I'm not even taking the piss out of him. He was actually trying to show because that was well. That would that be my other. Experience. That would be my other test for being in government. Would be to live on 38 quid a week for a month. For all of them to see exactly what it's like to have to, you know. It's a terrible individual experience, but you do feel that even now, 30-odd years on, it's still a systemic issue. More than it ever was, actually. You sort of, you know, in the, in the progressive 90s, and I'm putting that in rabbit commas, I sort of felt like things might get better, but they didn't. And I think that we're really living in a time right now of incredible inequality, worse than it was when I was younger. Which well, is only going to drive the country even further off a cliff. We're really pleased that you did decide to write this piece because it's it, it's fascinating. I think it will help a lot of people because even if it's not an Oxbridge interview, they might find various times in their mm, life where they've shown very, up to things in good faith yeah. and, and found yeah. things stacked against them. But it's very resonant. Thank yeah. you. Thanks very much. Thanks Ju for publishing it. No, well, thank you and thank you for coming in. Julia Bell, thanks so much. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks go to Mary Beard, Toby Lishtig and Julia Bell. And of course to the Dallas... As, as they call me. No one calls you that. <laughs> no, not really, no. Julia Bell, as she left, just said, what a lovely surname you that have. Was is there a, that is was there very a, nice. Is there a story it. behind it? It's a town. It's a town in Scotland. Did that lead to Dallas, Texas? Of course. Really? Yes, it did. Yeah. yeah. Oh. You're welcome. Oh, it's well from the done. Dallas family. Oh. Was it a clan? It's, do you really want me to go into this? It's not well, a not clan. a great length. It's but not I mean... a clan. It's, it's a sept of one of the clans. What's a clan? Um, let me think about it. I've got a mug with it on, Macintosh. I'm pretty sure we're a sept of the Macintosh. Feel free to write in if you know that the Dallas family is not a sept of the uh, clan Macintosh. Several things you've got to remember. Make sure you're subscribing to, to the TLS. This week really is very good, I promise. Tweet us your location for next week. Any criticisms of Lucy's lineage, that's fine as well. On next week's show, it's Books of the Year. Hooray! That exercise in showing off and log rolling. Just kidding, we don't do any of that, do we? But we're going to assemble a group, including you, Lucy, mm -hmm. to offer recommendations of books actually read 
actually read. Yeah, getting, I know what I'm doing this week then. You, yeah, you've got a week, week's uh-huh. warning. Lovely stuff. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.